an invitation. Uh, I, I tell you, I have known him all of his life. I don't know where he would be without me. <laughs> but I'm so glad that I have a son such as him who's willing and able. You know, there's sometimes you know what your children are. The word says train the child in the way that he should go and he will not depart. A lot of times they think that it's just in the word, but whatever the child is doing, you do what you can to make sure he do it in the right way. And then he will always remember what you taught. Now, with Brandon himself, he was one that was always, whenever we get to talking, we would get into the word. And before I know, he was preaching before he was actually called to preach because he loved the Lord so much. So he is definitely doing what God would have him to do. Amen. Truly, we thank God. And who wouldn't serve a God like this? Truly, our God is a sustainer, a provider, a way maker. We are so blessed to serve and live for a God like we serve. There's nobody like him. Nobody like him throughout the ages. So we thank God and praise him for yet another day that he has made. And we honor him in the presence of my pastor, my son, Pastor Brandon Knight, and in the uh, presence of Pastor Mike Jones. I'm sure he's virtually in, in the building. Amen. So we thank God for an opportunity to be here. You know, it was about a year ago that a tornado hit our church, and we had to rethink, really, what a church is. Our church was not destroyed. That building was, but our church is still steady going strong because we serve and we're living for Almighty God and wherever the church is in here, it's in our heart. So where we, but we really thank God for the opportunity to be in this building. Amen. Because we, we don't take it lightly. We truly bless all of you and, and especially Pastor Mike for allowing us to have service until we get to our next home. So we really thank God, for this opportunity also to, to embark on the word. Amen. I also want to honor my wife. Amen. She was up here singing to, on the left side. I don't see her now. I know she's in the building, but I'm so glad that she's with me. I tell you, she is a mighty woman of God. She has a way of lifting me up when I'm down, making me smile when I have a frown. And, and sometimes when I think highly, too highly that I might ought to, she has a way of bringing me back down to earth. So I'm really grateful to have a wife such as her. And most of my children is in the building. That's a blessing as well. They're all living. One of them couldn't make it, but the rest of them, my other three, uh, four are here. So we thank God for their presence. Did I count right? One, two, three are here. Amen. So now we're going to go to the Word. Those of you who have your Bible, we ask you to turn to Luke chapter 10. And we'll start at verse 25, and we'll go right into the Word. As you're getting there, I truly want to thank God for this opportunity. was a little shocked to be drafted or voluntold today that I will be bringing the message, but I am looking forward to see what God will do through me on this day. Amen. Chapter 10 of Luke, starting at verse 25, and it reads as such. As you stand for the reading of the Word, Amen. <clears throat> And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength 
and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wound, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took him, took out to him two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatsoever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to this man who fell among the robbers, he said? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. God, we thank you for your holy word. God, we ask as we partake in the meal that you have prepared for us that you will do what pleases you. We ask that you have your way, God. Have your way in this service. God, have your way in your people. And God, right now, please have your way in me. We allow your Holy Spirit to rule and abide in our hearts, soul, and minds. And all glory that may be received, we don't try to keep it for ourselves. But God, we give all glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, we're going to use for a focal theme today, labels. Labels. See, as we journey through the challenges of life in the 2020s, battling a pandemic that has caused us to curtail our lifestyles drastically, no longer can we live our social lives carefree. We must thoughtfully and carefully interact with others outside of our normal circles, our normal contacts. Our greetings have even changed. The handshake is falling away, and now the, the more common way is by a fist pump or by an elbow tap. Uh, small talk to casual friends is almost non-existent. Uh, it gets to the point when we are going out our business, most of the time we're wearing masks, and we could see somebody that we know, but we don't recognize them if we had seen them in a, mile, in a minute because of the mask that they have. You even go to the store sometimes that you might recognize somebody, but they don't recognize you. And you determine, do I want to acknowledge myself, knowing in your back of your head that they're going to hold me up at least five minutes. So you think about and ponder, do I reveal myself or not? Me being in high school class of 1980, he said almost 60, in the class, it's rare that I see someone that I recognize as a classmate. When I do run into one I recognize, I ask them, Did you, have you seen anybody lately from, from school? And most of the time they say, well, well, I saw them on Facebook. And to me, that's 
that, that doesn't really count, you know, but, but it is now becoming the more common way of contact. Even with our friends, our family, the more way of seeing and keeping in touch with one another is now becoming more virtual than in actually being together. So we got to even rethink how we going to live. Even church has changed. Now, you look at how many people that are in this building, but there are much more people that are getting the word today than are in the building because virtual has become a real thing in our society. So this pandemic, as it is attacking our bodies physically, creating a wedge between our hearts and our lungs, it sometimes is creating a barrier in our lives socially. Now, we're, we're, we're using labels to determine, are we going to be, uh, do we want to invest time in this person that we meet? And we do it real, real soon uh, when we first come in contact with somebody. We assign labels, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, socialist, Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Reformed, Pentecostal, mainstream media, fake news, black lives, blue lives, affirmative action, articulate, plus-sized, big-boned, good hair, <laughs> prejudice, racist, woke, caring, Felicia, these labels we're putting on things now, and we hear these terms in a conversation, and we determine which side of the line we're going to fall on. And we do it very, very soon. When I was in elementary school, after integration, I had to decide whether I was going to be a fan of Alabama or Auburn. Times have changed. My 70-year-old daughter, Rhea, her first day of school in the state of Alabama, in pre-K, she came home with this big dilemma. I'm wondering, what did they talk about the first day of school? And she said, Daddy, who are we for, Alabama or Auburn? In pre-K, the first thing that she had to decide was what team she was going to be allegiant with. That's Alabama for us. But now, times are changing. In, in middle school now, they're faced with a big decision. Are they going to be called he, she, or now non-binary? Now, now non-binary, for you who haven't heard this, they don't want to call themselves he or she. They just don't want to assign any pronouns to them, which means to me that there is so much work because the harvest truly is plenteous, but we've got a whole lot of work to do. Amen. So today, we will deal with one of the most misinterpreted scriptures, one of the most misinterpreted scriptures, preached the Good Samaritan. Mainly because ministers, they get so hung, not ministers, people, just get so hung up on the label, Good Samaritan. See, in the text, Jesus is approached by a lawyer, most likely a Pharisee. He stepped to Jesus and asked what he needed to do to gain eternal life. Jesus said it back, what is written? The lawyer quoted Deuteronomy 6 and 5, and it says, Love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And also Leviticus 19, which says, Love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus said, that's it. You got it. You do that and you will have eternal life. But I'm sure Jesus was thinking to himself, if you do that, there was no be no need of me. What's the need of me coming if you could do that? But he said, yeah, you got it right, young man. You go and you do that. You will gain eternal life. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do that, you will get eternal life. So the lawyer himself wanted to know what he needed to do to get eternal life. So Jesus tells him a story, a parable that tells a simple truths that they could get without rejection. You know, sometimes you hear things and, and if it's not coming out the way you want it, you'll say, that ain't for me. But he made it so simple that nobody could reject what was being said. So Jesus tells the story. He said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, in the time of Jesus, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was well known for its danger and difficulty. So much so that it was also called the way of blood because of the blood which often shed there by robbers. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered that famous sermon, I've been to the mountaintop, on the day before his assassination. And he said it this way. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as a setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 uh, feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. So in order to get from Jerusalem to Jericho, you had to travel through Samaria. Most took the shortest route, even though it was more common for people to get beaten and robbed on that journey. And that's exactly what happened to the subject of this story. Go to say, now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, we have a man, half dead, laying in the road, a priest and a Levite, a deacon or some type of servant for the Lord, but not a priest. They both go right past him. Jesus didn't say where they were going, where they were coming from, what they were doing, what they were planning to do. He didn't say it in his story, so I'm not going to speculate on what their mission was. All I know is they saw the man and they aborted the man. Amen. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an end and took care of him. See, a Samaritan, take note that Jesus didn't say, Good Samaritan. 
He said, a Samaritan. No, that title was added later. And this is one of those compliments where you question, is it really a compliment? You know, when somebody says, you're so articulate. You look good. Did, did you lose weight? Oh, you're pretty. You're so handsome to be so dark-skinned. You know, some people say, and you wonder, well, is that really a compliment? Well, they said he's a good Samaritan, as if there's nothing good to come out of Samaria. Mm-hmm. So he was Samaritan at a time where there was much contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jews didn't like Samaritans, and Samaritans didn't like Jews. They both were doing things to totally disrespect one another. But since history was being recorded by Jews, we naturally will look at it from the perspective of the author. It's like critical race theory. As far as I know, it's history. But it shows a bad light on the people recording said history. Therefore, it's critical. It looks as a how strategic lenders were in giving loans to people living in one side of the town and turning down loans to people that live on the other side of town. It looked at how infrastructure and how it was granted in one neighborhood, but the same neighborhood was not in a different neighborhood. They did not get the, the, the infrastructure needed, the, the, the funds needed to straighten out their roads and all. It looked at how one person would go for, apply for a loan to buy a home, uh, working the same job, making the same money as another person that lives in a different neighborhood, but the one that lives in one neighborhood got the job, got the loan, while the other ones was turned down. It looked at how laws were passed and errors were policed to make one area look like a terrible area, bringing down the value and make it seem one is dead because they're policing laws according to the area that people lived in and they were passing laws that were particularly specify people of one race more so than the other. All these things went on, but it's all not been recorded. But, but therefore it is critical, but it's history. Another word for history is his story. It's always jaded towards the person uh, writing said history. Amen. So, therefore, we have a good Samaritan. It's going to bring us to our first point or first question. What do they call you? What do they call you? In Second Chronicles chapter 28, starting verse 13, verse 13, it reads, You shall not bring the captives in here, For you propose to bring upon us guilt against the Lord in addition to our present sins and guilt. For our guilt is great already, and there is fierce wrath against Israel. So the armed men left the captives and the spoils before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. And with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them, and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. So in this chapter, in the first part of it, Ahaz was the king of Judah. And it says he did not do what was right 
in the sight of the Lord as he as his father David did. Now David was actually his this was his tenth in succession, so he would have been David would have been his great 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 maybe another couple great grandfathers, and so but they said he was not doing what was good in the sight of the Lord. So he was overthrown first by Syrians. And at this time of this chapter, they were in a sort of a civil war between Israel and Judah at the time. It says that Israel won and they killed over 120 soldiers and took as prisoners 200,000 women and children. They were planning to have them held captive, locked up in jail in Samaria. That was their plan. However, there was a prophet named Oded who stepped up and said, they have enough problems already in Samaria. He and other elders said they would not allow them to add another curse on them for putting God's people in prison for nothing. These are your people, they said. These are your relatives. You take them back with you. And that's where we are in this, in this chapter, Second Chronicles. But the chief of the army said that here is the spoils we have acquired from them. Take them and do whatever you want with the people. Take the spoils, take the money, take the people and do whatever you want. The Samaritans then, listen, loosed the captives, gave them back their money, gathered clothes and shoes, put the feeble on donkeys, and escorted them to Jericho. Then they returned to Samaria. You see a correlation there between the story, the parable that Jesus was giving and what actually happened in Second Chronicles. Now, now, Jesus knew this was in the Bible, and but this wasn't the story he was telling because if it was, he would have said it is written and he went by the law. But part of the reason he didn't want to say that because it may have been rejected this way. So he came to him with a parable that said the exact same thing, but it was easier received by the people because he knew at that time they didn't like Samaritans. So he gave them a parable. But what happened in that story, the same thing. The man was faced with the opportunity of, of locking the people up or releasing them. And they chose, I don't know how many people would actually do that. You got 120, no, no, 200,000 people. And they give you the money and the gold, whatever else they had. They gave it all to the people. But instead of keeping it for themselves like many politicians would do today, Instead of keeping it for themselves, they decided to return it, help the people get back in shape, and sent them back home. So that's where we are today. Now, uh, they were already definitely neighbors. You know, he asked, who is my neighbor? They were definitely neighbors because you couldn't get to Jericho through Jerusalem without going through Samaria. Samaria bordered, bordered all those cities. So they were definitely neighbors. So he was asking, who was my neighbor? It was no doubt that Samaritans were their neighbors. So the question is, 
So what do they call you? Friend, neighbor, enemy, frenemy. Who are you to the people you see? Mm -hmm. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, said in chapter 5, verse 43, said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. So of your family and friends, how are you different than gangsters or, or mobsters? How are you different from the Aryans or the KKK? They too love their families. But if you want to be called sons of God, you must love your enemy. But he went even further. He said, pray for them. And he, that prayer, he said, was not an underhanded prayer where you say, daddy, uh, get them, God. <laughs> you, God, you know they're not right. God, put them under my feet. <laughs> Make them my footstool, footstool, God, in the name of Jesus. God ain't going to answer that prayer. And if he answered it, it won't because of what you prayed. It, he will be doing what was coming to them anyway. It won't because you prayed. We're not to pray something underhand where we should be praying in love. Pray that they be saved. Pray that they be blessed. Pray that they have a good life. Pray that they get promotion. Pray for the things you want. Pray that for your enemy. Before you know it, they might not be your enemy much longer. My former pastor used to say that, that while people were throwing, one person would throw salt, the other person would throw sugar. Oh, that person throws salt, the other person throws sugar. And he said, why? He said, well, when they run out of salt, they're going to have nothing but sugar to throw. So they're going to be throwing sugar back at you. That's how you do it. Treat them. Do right things for them because you never know what's going to change their heart, what change their life, what change their minds. Pray for them. Amen. Because we want to be called children of God. Amen. Our next question. Second question. First, what do they call you? Second, do your answer. Do your answer to what they call you. Amen. But I say unto you, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I earlier mentioned some labels that polarizes us, makes us choose which side that we will be on. But there are some labels that are put on us by folk that have no intention of encouraging us. Matter of fact, they want to make you feel less than you are. When I was very young, we had a phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never. So y'all heard it too. <laughs> words, but, but you know, sometimes words can hurt. Amen. 
Sometimes words can hurt. And it depends on who those words are coming from determine the level of pain that is incurred by said words. Whenever I counsel someone in this area, I ask two simple questions. First, is what they saying about you, is it true? Is it true? Does what they say about you, is it, does it fit your character or your behavior? If the answer is yes, then you know the label that you were called is true, but you don't want it to continually be a descriptive of you, then you pray. Be honest and ask God to help you change that about yourself. Now, we know there are some labels that we have, no matter how much you don't want it, that label is going to stick. For instance, Brandon always called me old. He right. I'm country. I can't change that. I'm black. I'm going to be that till I die. Well, Michael Jackson, most of us can't change that. There are some labels that are assigned, no matter how you live, it's going to be you. Just accept it. But there are some that, 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 that being short or, or being tall or being skinny, dark, something you don't like. If you hear that about yourself and you don't like that description, let me remind you of something. In Psalms 139, verse 13, it said, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being in, made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. See, God did not make a mistake when he made you. Amen? He did not make a mistake. You are not in the wrong body. You're not a woman trapped in a man's body. You're not a man trapped in a woman's body. You're not too dark. You're not too light. You're not too short. You're not too tall. Most of you ain't too fat or too skinny. You're just what God made you to be. And you, not just that, you were skillfully, fearfully, and wonderfully made. Sometimes we need to encourage ourselves. I was fearfully, skillfully, and wonderfully made. I don't care what you see. I know what I see, and I know what God says about me. Amen. So don't be body shamed by an insecure bully who, who only feels positive the moment he makes you feel down. Amen. Especially to the kids. Don't be let them sway who you think about yourself because you were skillfully and wonderfully made. Amen. Amen. Secondly, if they are trying to put you down for the sake of it or if they are saying something that it, it uh, tells what you used to be, but you know it's not truth for today. He gets that. It's not what you are today. What do you do? Well, I often say, if they called you that bench you sitting on, would you be upset? No, because you know you're not a bench. So why would you be upset when they call you something outside of your name, they try to throw a label on you, and you know it's not true about yourself? 
let it roll right off of your back. Amen. That's what I like about the old days now. In the old days, they would have some crazy way of putting you down. Old stanky dog, old cow. They would say things like that when they put you down, but that they knew wasn't true. But you couldn't take it personal because you knew it wasn't true. Now they get more specifics and they put down. But just like that, if you know it's not true, let it roll right off. Don't bring that home and put it in your spirit because it is not true. Amen. So hurtful downgrading, downgrading labels, people try to lay it on you. Just let it slide. Jesus said this phrase, when the Samaritan saw the man. He had compassion on him. This is a much bigger issue today. We can't see someone who is not looking like us or acting like us. We can't see them. If they're not looking through the same rose-colored glasses that we're looking through, we can't see them. We can't identify them. We can't have compassion on them because that happened to them and it's not us. Mentally, we go to the other side of the road. We see all kind of news on TV, but we don't accept it. We don't pray. We don't do it because that was them. So we go to the other side of the road when we see certain conditions to certain people who don't look, act, or sound like us. For instance, anytime you see a parent who's grieving over the loss of a child, if you have a child, you should have compassion on that. It don't matter what color they are. It don't matter how old they are. It don't matter what, what state they live in. If you have a child, you can identify with a parent, a mother, or a father losing their child. You don't have to look at it as if they're different because that's that. No, they're a parent. They're a parent. If we see someone suffering, at least try to identify with it without psychoanalyzing. If that person hadn't been out drinking or if that person weren't in the streets when they should have been at home, if they weren't out in the wrong crowd, don't analyze every downfall of someone else. As if you never had a drink. As if you've never been in the wrong crowd. As if you've never been one place when God told you to be somewhere else. Amen. Don't be psychoanalyzing somebody else. If somebody needs compassion, share that compassion in whatever way you can do. And the, as you said, the house of prayer, that's the best thing we can do for someone. Because we can't reach out to everyone we see on the news of going through things. But what we can do is we can pray. And that's the greatest way of showing compassion. But oh, if it had not been for the Lord on my side, there might I be also. Remind myself, I could have been there. I could have been in that situation. It wasn't because of my good looks, my strength, my, my ugliness. It wasn't because of none of that. It was only by the grace of God that he kept me from going into those situations that others were being and something else, what we do as Christians, sometimes we forget. You know, we forget a lot of the things that we did, and we look at it like it had never happened, but 
you were in that same predicament. It just didn't do you like it did them. So don't psychoanalyze every situation. And man, it brings us down to our last question, I think. Are you who you say you are? Are you who you say you are? Jesus said, ask the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So faced with these examples of men, the lawyer, who had to choose the one that seemed to be showing himself a neighbor to the man in distress. Was it the priest either completing a task or en route to do the work of the Lord? Was it this Levite who had been uh, set aside for the work of the law, him and his family, since his birth? Was it the Samaritan who they looked upon as always vexing God's people? The lawyer chose correctly. He said it was the Samaritan. Jesus told him to go and do likewise. Now, this is where most messages end in this area. By this, but this is not the most important point of the parable. See, the lawyer was in the presence of God in the flesh. And in a moment of self-reflection, the lawyer had to realize that it is impossible to help everyone that he may see in need. To help everyone that he may come in contact with. To help them in this manner, to help using the example that Jesus has showed, if you had Bill Gates money, you couldn't help everyone that needed help. But instead of voicing the impossibility of the task, in the presence of one that had the power to grant the impossible, in the presence of the one that had the authority to grant him the gifts and the tools needed to gain eternal life, but instead of the lawyer looking at himself and his inabilities, instead of him asking Jesus, how can I do that? He just left. Jesus, in his wisdom, put the man in perfect position to say, Jesus, I can't do it. That moment, that feeling of helplessness, that moment of being in need is the perfect position to be in to receive the gospel. And he was there with the gospel himself and just left. Hmm. The hardest part in sharing the gospel is getting someone to realize that they truly need it. You know, because because uh, when when you reach somebody, they're in a, a, a terrible state of mind or they're in, their lives are in shambles and, and, and you try to reach them, they, they will receive it because they've tried everything already. They've already, so they'll try this too. But the problem is that they tried everything else. Don't try everything else and then come try Jesus the Lord says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Trust the Lord with all thine heart. 
Lean not to your own understanding. And in all thy ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct thy path. Amen. Amen. He says, call upon me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We can't wait in a time that we're living in today. With this pandemic, the Omicron, the Delta, all these different things are going on. We can't wait. And not only can we not wait to accept the gospel, we cannot wait to share the gospel. Amen. We never know when we're going to see someone for the last time. So every opportunity you get, share the gospel. Amen. But if we think on the question and the answer, the reason for the parable, the lawyer asked Jesus what he needed to do to gain eternal life. The answer the lawyer gave was love the Lord God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. Then he asked, who is my neighbor? In essence, the lawyer is asking Jesus, who am I supposed to love? Who You show me who I'm supposed to love, and that's what I need to get to heaven? I'm going to love that person. Hmm. That's what the lawyer was asking him. Which brings us here. Did the lawyer take issue with the giving or did he take issue to who he was giving to? That's why you got to ask yourself, are you who you say you are? Are you letting different things about different people hinder you spreading the gospel? Are you letting different things about different people choose or stop or hinder your giving in whatever manner that you're able to give? So who are you who you say you are? When it's all said and done, are you living your life as this lawyer trying to do what's right, staying away from evildoers as best you can? Is that good enough? Are you content with your four and no more? Are you sharing what was freely given unto you? Last week, Pastor Brandon made a great point. Well, he made a few good points, but one point that really ministered to me, he shared how Paul continued proclaiming truth, faced with jail, faced with exile, faced with death. But he never stopped sharing the gospel. He asked basically, what will you be remembered for? For your great gift, for your talents, for how much of a giver you were? Or will it be remembered for your unyielding faith? Will you be one remember the fact that no matter the situation, no matter how hard the hill was to climb, no matter the temptation that may have come your way, no matter the persecution that you faced, you kept the faith and you shared your faith in him as often as you could. It doesn't matter how much money you have or the amount of gifts you have. It's that your ministry is based on. If that's what it's based on, 
you're going to give out. Yet still, when it's all said and done, it won't be enough to make it in. So it's not about what you give. I mean, how much you give. It's not about how much you give. It's about what you give. We ought to base our ministry on what we give. If we're Christians, we should be giving love, giving grace, giving mercy, giving compassion. Of these things, we'll never run out. I don't care how much you give, you will never run out. If we are to be called Christians, we must share Christ. Let us pray. God, we thank you right now for your living word, how you are yet teaching us, how your word is omnipresent, and how the same word you gave to ministers, to the lawyer, and to your disciples then, it's the same word that ministers to your disciples today. God, we pray that we may acknowledge the specific people that you put in our past that require total restoration. We pray we react accordingly, just as the love was shown upon us while we were yet sinners. We pray that we share the same love while we continue to sow your love of love, your seed of love to others. God, as we are in a moment of self-reflection, we pray that if there is any behavior in us that we know is not becoming of the life of a Christian, we pray that you correct that behavior and keep us humble to the fact that if it was you who did it and we didn't do it ourselves. We pray that if there's someone who is at the point where they see they have been living contrary to your word, that because of your gospel, God, that they now hear the call of repentance and begin to turn their lives toward you. God, we pray that you heal this world from this pandemic. And also we pray that you heal this nation, this world, of the many rifts that have placed in our hearts to decide to, to break us up apart from one another. And we begin to show the love as the example that you have shown. In Jesus' name we pray. Let all hearts say amen. Thank you, Lord.